Well, the screams at home when it happened. We were all three generations up on their feet, hooting and hollering. When they screech and yell and nobody can hear a damn thing at the ground, it is purely for television. It is an incredible waste of money. It adds nothing to the grand final. If only that $750,000 was better spent by the AFL. It's all mucked up. And often you'll have a, a journalist who's writing a news story and in the third paragraph they'll sometimes use the I word, which is a sin. It spans eight decades, four generations, so it's not oh for the faint-hearted. Bellwether produced a whole series of greyhounds, but one of them was called Eden Monaro. After the electorate. After, yeah, because <laughs> it's always called the Bellwether electorate. <laughs> How much do we love Joanna? What a complete babe at 72. Where's the white wine? Oh, God. Whose recipe is this? Okay, go on. Go on. <laughs> Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 57. Goodness me, where does the time go? I'm Corey Perkin, and I'm not here today with my friend and my usual co-host, Caroline Wilson. She's off playing golf somewhere on the New Zealand south coast. We are laughing at that because that's just the most (laughs) unlikely thing she'd be doing. I'm very happy to be joined by two dear old friends, not old in that sense, old in the real sense, Jeff Slattery, journalist, publisher, and a former restaurateur, and a cookbook author. And old, sorry. (laughs) And a regular contributor to our uh, housekeeping section because you're always pulling us up on something. Well, and I'll pull you off straight away. If Caro's playing golf, I'm Donald Trump. (laughs) <laughs> she told me that the boys are going to be playing golf and she'll be using the uh, spa room. <laughs> <laughs> For a bit of treatment. And we're also here with everyone's favourite, our friend of the pod. Welcome um, to amazing cook, prolific reader and the big boss at the Sacred Heart Op Shop, Anna Barry. Hello, Anna. Good morning, Corey. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Anna. Nice to see you again. Last time was at the preliminary final or the no, no, the one before? It was the Hawks D's, Hawks whatever that final was. The one we lost. Uh, We've got a bit of housekeeping before we um, go on to what is going to be a terrific show, and we will talk about the grand final on the weekend, guys. A clarification last week in her book review about women in black, Caro continued to refer to the author as Madeline St. John. And I ran into someone this week who had met Madeline before she died, who said this person also had called her Mrs. or Miss St. John and was corrected very sternly. By Madeline, it's Sinjin. So I have to say that. Did you know that, Anna? I did know that. Like the jeweller. Remember there was that good jeweller in Melbourne and it was Sinjin. Well, both spelt St. John. Yes, and also the New South Wales, there was a parliamentarian who I think is uh, Madeline's father and he was always known as Sinjin. So there you go. And then last week we also had a chat about West Coast Eagles coach Adam Simpson's role in the unfortunate chicken gate affair (laughs) of 2009, which was an incident where he and a couple of other North Melbourne players made an offensive video involving a rubber chicken. And Caro said the chicken had a name, but she couldn't remember it. I have had correspondence from somebody who did not wish to be named. I don't know why, but they said the chicken's name was Boris, and the video was titled The Adventures of Little Boris. That's a good one for a trivia night, isn't it? Little Boris, little Boris made uh, hay in London today with the um, Conservative Conference, I understand. I understand there was a standing ovation for oh, Little Boris. Oh, God, help us all. Oh, good. And, and for the first time in the history of Liberal Party co- or Tory conferences, the Prime Minister refu- or the leader refused to do a press conference. She was obviously so mortified by 
by trouble in the ranks. The whole political world is in incredible turmoil. Oh, it's just all a mess. So I would, um, before we move on with our show, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Interchange Bench. Recruit the best staff with the Interchange Bench, and we love the Interchange Bench. They're very supportive of our podcast. A couple of uh, nice little messages here. Uh, Joanna Brad uh, on our Facebook page. Uh, when I was grumpy last week about passwords, which I forget, Joanna said, following on from the chat, re-passwords this week. After my Uber account was hacked by Russians last year, <laughs> probably because I used the same password for Uber as I had from all my other accounts that had been compromised, I learned a great trick from our cyber team. Pick a phrase such as, I love Richmond, and then add three letters for each particular login. So Facebook, Facebook would be, I love Richmond FAC, and Uber would be I love Richmond UBE. You only have to remember the one phrase, but each password is distinct and quite longer, and the longer it is, the harder it is to hack. Very good system, Joanna. I've got another issue with that. I've actually lost the Carol and Corey Instagram account, guys. <laughs> I can't remember the password. <laughs> so we don't have to endure any more photos of you on that account. Is that correct? Correct. You oh. look happy. <laughs> <laughs> And Sarah Bernard says she's been loving our recipes but asked, how do I get your recipes if not off Facebook? And Sarah, you'll find all the details of each show, recipes included in the show notes. So all you have to do is just click on the episode in your podcast app and scroll down and they will be there. And in fact, Jeff Slattery has a recipe for us today. Anna has a book review. Anna and I have been watching Joanna Lumley yet again, fallen in love with her. But we will start, guys, first of all, with the tootie. So I didn't go to the grand final, and I would imagine as a Tiger supporter you didn't go to the grand final. I certainly did not. But as an impartial footy fan, I'm seeing that people saying it's a um, it was a great contest but not a great grand final. I absolutely loved it from the cheap seats at home. Yes, it was a, it was a great match, wasn't it? It was a great contest. I know there are some, you know, controversies coming out of it, but we loved it. We were on our feet at the end of the game leaping around at three-quarter time. I thought it was fantastic. I think you're just defining a great contest, though. <clears throat> Not necessarily a great example of all the skills that we love to see in footy. That, that was where I came from. See, I, lo- I love seeing um, the West Coast Eagles, the high marking, the great kicking, as compared to the Collingwood, get the ball on the ground, the sort of more the Richmond mm, the nuggety style game. of, you know, hit the ground, kick, you know, kick those goals just with the crummers. So I love the fact that there was two... Varying styles. You're defining a fan who's not a fan of either club watching it on television as or enjoying I said, the contest. As I said, from the cheap seats, yeah, I thought, you, it, I mean, we had a gorgeous lunch. Mum loved it. I, we had fun. So you were there, Jeff? Yeah, I was there. Oh, one, yeah, one A and one B <laughs> in the official AFL function, which went on and on and on. You've been, you, how, you no longer are the publisher of AFL product. How do you continue to bob up in 1A and 1B all these years later? That's a very good question, and I'm not about to, to investigate. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't know. After the game, I ran into Mike Sheen, and we both agreed that the contest was fantastic and it was in, in, involving, and there were moments, but we just didn't think that it sat with the great dramas of some of the other grand finals that we've seen. Um, including all the way back to 1989, that incredible match when the Hawks kicked the first six goals and then hang on, hung on by the skin of their teeth with Gary Ablett's nine goals. So things mm. like that, I guess, stick in the mind rather than a dour struggle that had moments, um, 
Mason Cox's great comeback in the second half, Jack Darling, mm. um, the finale of McGovern, followed by uh, Vardy, followed by Liam Ryan, followed by that controversial mark play on. And the great goal. What, yeah, what are both your goal. what about what are both your views about the Braden Maynard um, free kick, which we you know changed the course of the game? Well, it did, but there were two minutes to play, so who would know what would happen? But I have no doubt that there was a block put on by uh, Willie Rioli, and I also am sure that uh, in his mind he was going to play on. And the question would be if if Maynard had tackled um, Sheed at that moment. Would the umpire have given him fifty mm. metre penalty? So all these things are tense and what ifs and what ifs. But you know the thing is that the West Coast actually dominated that last quarter and kicked three goals, six to two goals at the front of the, uh, of the in the first two minutes. So they were clearly the, the team that deserved to win. But it's disappointing when when a controversial end to a game happens and dominates conversation for a long time, including the Wednesday after. Well, the screams at home when it happened, was it the same at your place, Anna? We were all three generations up on their feet, hooting and hollering. And and whose side were you on? Did we, you were, think we were completely barracking for the West Coast, so huh. so I was very happy for the Cup to be going to the West. <laughs> Given that Collingwood had beaten the Tigers, I was actually a fairly passionate it eagle is so for the funny, afternoon. You know, it is so it's funny. tragic, so, I know. Somebody came into the bookshop on um, Monday, I think it was, and uh, it, a Melbourne supporter still despondent, you know, a week later probably. Absolutely. Like just, you know, and I said, oh, did you go for the Victorian side? No way, they said. Collingwood. You know what's wonderful about this is that the controversy of the finish, the Dom Sheed goal, the fantastic kick, we, we're talking now about 1979 and Wayne Harms's moment when he kicked the uh, he tossed the ball from outside the boundary line into Kenny Sheldon and kicked the goal. And Carlton won by five points. So that's 40 years ago and we're still, we're talking, still talking about it. And I can still see it in my mind's eye. So I do, you think, that and do, you think, do you think this will be as, as famous? I think so. And also the fact that he, that he stayed on script and kicked a drop punt, which mm. he said he's been practising for a long time, rather than around the corner kick, which takes the pressure off in lots of ways because if you miss it, you think, oh, well, he hit the ball on the wrong side. He absolutely smashed it through the middle of the goals. What a kick. Yeah, it, it was, was a, a beautiful goal. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely So, Jeff, you goal. said earlier it was a great contest but not a great grand final. What does that mean for you? Um, I, I just think it was up and down and up and down and, and uh, one team took the lead. And in, in that first bit, Collingwood got five goals. West Coast fought back to get to within to, to level the scores, level the scores at three-quarter time. Just a tight match. The moments that... <sighs> you know, transport me into another level of uh, joy about footy didn't happen as much. Hawthorne's playing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So in Anna's uh, description, she would have hated last year's grand final when all they did was punch the ball along the ground and win every contest. As if I didn't absolutely (laughs) love it. But I'm just saying... I love the the two different styles of play. Yeah. That to me, and also when you're not in emotionally invested, I just wanted a good game. And I thought the rest of the final series have been fairly lacklustre, completely one-sided, games over by the end of the first quarter. So for the punter at home, I thought it was great. All that works. Yeah, it worked for us. All that works. So I wanted to ask you both, um, looking at, uh, you know, Adam Simpson, yet another Alistair Clarkson protege from the Hawthorne coaching team, along with um, the, the chap from Footscray that you and I have the crush on. <laughs> Bevo. Luke. <laughs> Our peanut man. 
Uh, but there are there are so many of them, and um, I just uh, wondered what you both thought of Kara's comment a couple of weeks ago when she said Alistair Clarkson is the greatest coach in recent times. And you, and I mean, you look at Damien Hardwick; he was at the Hawks under. Mm. Under Clarko and obviously Adam Simpson, Luke Beveridge, uh, Leon Cameron, who's the Greater Western Sydney coach, John Barker, who's do, who was doing good things at Carlton as the caretaker coach there for a while. It's not a bad list. Well, now we've got Brett Ratton. So <clears throat> how will he end up after his uh, role at St Kilda? Will he get back into the senior coaching role after seven years at Hawthorne? So what, what, a, what a training ground for him you know, after his period at Carlton when, if you look at his record, he did better than anybody he's done since. Mm. Um, I think the fact that Hawthorne has, in fact, all clubs have a sort of a university these days of coaching because there are five or six senior assistants working the line. So at the end of the grand final, Adam Simpson said at the halftime break, he let his line coaches do all the talking. You know, So someone said, what did you, do? What did you say to Jack Darling? Well, he, he didn't say anything to him. He let the line coaches do the job. So the training that they all get on the job is much more than it ever was before. So in the Norm Smith era, when he won so many flags, the only one of that group that came out as a senior coach was Ron Barassi. And there were about five or six of them who ended up coaching. Because Norm he didn't was, delegate? Well, they were players and there was no assistant coaches. It was him sitting on the bench with his footy record, for God's sake. <laughs> what an amazing sight that some of those photos are. And he's are. overcoat. And he's overcoat, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but now the structure's so different, isn't it, in terms of the ladder to get to a senior coach? Well, it's, uh, it's an executive structure in the business sense where um, roles are given to the finance officer, to the chief operating officer, to, to all, all sections of the organisation. They've all got responsibilities. And the players align themselves to those people's voice rather than the senior coach. The senior coach is the overall strategist. But the way I understand Alistair Clarkson works, for all the credits he gets, it's completely a roundtable discussion. And he respects everybody's voice. He hears them. He imposes on the players, the playing group, what's required from that um, consensus position rather than him being the person who stamps his fist on the table and says, this is what we're going to do. Well, I tell you what, we need Clarko in Canberra then. Oh, well, or at yeah. the ABC. Well, George Megalogenes has just done a book on that issue. That's right. You know, comparing the Richmond success with the failure of politics as a as a, a comparison that works for me. Um, I'd like to just um, say good day to Shauna O'Sullivan, who is uh, one of our potties, and she made a comment on Facebook. Did anyone else think Andrew Gaff feeling sorry for himself and crying after the game was really poor form? And she contrasts that with Nick Natanui, who was smiling, congratulating teammates and so happy for them. I feel sorry for Natanui, not Gaff, she says. Thoughts? Completely agree. I thought Gaff... How was... self-indulgent. Oh, I just thought, put your game day face on and be happy for your teammates. Don't look sullen, pouting, yeah, as if he was all... I didn't see him crying, but on the verge of tears. I thought really bad form. Jeff? Uh, mm. Sort of a bit each way on this one. I can understand his position. Have you ever missed a grand final uh, when no. you used to play? No. One grand final, one premiership. Oh, did you? <laughs> How you was, that La, was that De La Salle? De La Salle, yeah, 1975. You don't have to give the year 1975. <laughs> we, don't, we don't talk ages here. No, oh, we just want to hear your success rate 100%. Jeff, we had sad news this week, you and I, because a former colleague of ours, Tony Peake, who uh, used to be, oh, well, he was at the AFL for so many years, but he, you and I, used to kind of co-edit the footy record together for a period of time there. 
But Peaky sadly passed away a few days ago, which is just um, very, very sad. Oh, look, it's just... And way too early. Way too early. Um, Tony was presented with life membership of the AFL in June uh, at a very, very moving ceremony at AFL House. Um, And everyone knew? Well, everyone knew because the AFL uh, presents its life membership in February each year. So the, the clear sense of that was Tony wouldn't be around in February next year. But... He will always be around in the AFL and, and we talked about football and politics being a good uh, sounding board for each other. If only federal politics had a person like Tony Peake who could hold the joint together in the back rooms and say, hang on, this happened 10 years ago or this happened five years ago and we can't go down that route anymore or we tried that and it failed or don't be ridiculous in the way you're apl- applying yourself to that. You know, <clears throat> that's the Tony that... I knew and what he did for 1989 he started there, 1989. So we're talking about how many, 30 years of the ultimate backroom boy who is loyalty to the leadership in every one of those iterations in in the development of the national game from 87 to 96 when Ross Oakley retired, then through the Wayne Jackson era, then the Demetrio era, then the McLaughlin era. He, He was just a... It was just a statue of solidarity with the vision of the league while still being an argumentative force in executives and, and around the joint. And he also got the business of the game too, Slats, don't you think? For uh, somebody who started life as a journalist, he had a reasonable, uh, you know, a, a, a reasonably broad knowledge of how the organisation worked and you had to think about the yeah. nuts and bolts of the coffers. Yeah, well, he did, but... Uh, again, in that point that I made about Alistair Clarkson, he understood people who had better talents than he did in those areas and was prepared to listen to them and, if needed, carry that voice into the executive and then from the executive to the commission. So um, irreplaceable, I think, except he has been replaced by Patrick Keane, who has been there 20 years and has a similar sense of how the organisation works and an incredible loyalty to the place and the people and the executive. So the king is dead, long live the king is a sense, but Tony's sense of um, love of place will just resonate through the organisation for a long time. So I first met Tony Peake when I was a young 20-year-old sports reporter and I was sent to cover a baseball final Gosh. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> From memory, out in Glen Waverley, somewhere Yeah, it wouldn't there. be out in Waverley. Well, Tony and, was the um, president of Waverley uh, Baseball Club. Yeah, well, he was there. He was yeah. there covering it for the Sun News Pictorial. And um, so somebody introduced us, you know, said, oh, you two Junos, you can sit together. And so I said in my meek little way, oh, is this like softball or rounders? <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine the glare. <laughs> And I thought Tony well, I, <laughs> I thought Tony was the grumpiest person I'd ever met, this old grumpy man who I now realise is only about ten or twelve years older than me. And then I end up years later working for him in an office next to him in the in the MCG itself with those cold balsa, balsa brick yeah. that shocking office you put me in because you were my boss too. And Peaky was in the other office. That's when he was. His role was as the. He bought me a heater. I remember. Oh God! 
He was the communications manager of the league at that stage. My goodness me, hasn't it changed in those times? So the um, semi-bowels of the MCG oh, yeah, into it was AFL House. So only about my third week, because you were back in you know, head office with your central heating. And you oh. said, you said, as editor of the football record, I think you should be down where the action is. So they stuck me in this little cupboard. And in about the third week, I walked into Tony's office and he said, how's it going? And I said, I'm freezing to death. I can't feel my toes. I need heating. I need a new office. I need an apartment. <laughs> he bought me a blow heater. Well, it's interesting you mentioned old and grumpy with Tony. Lots of people would think he's always been old, which he has, <laughs> and also grumpy, but he's always been abrupt rather than grumpy and insular rather than outgoing. That's the sort but of a, Tony. But a lovely, warm heart. Always caring about his staff. Vale, Tony Pete. On to the ABC, um, guys, and I don't want to get too bogged down because this is a moving story as we speak, um, and I'm a bit concerned that the government is now becoming involved with um, Scott Morrison saying the other day to Barry Cassidy, they better work it out or, or else he'll, be, he'll step in. But I just wonder what you two are thinking of the ABC. Where, where to from here? What, what, should, um, what, what should be happening here? Should, should we actually sack the whole board? And start again? Well... Or just get on with the business of producing great television and radio? The, the only answer to that is, that it, it, back to footy again, is do, does anyone know how a coach performs until they're actually inside the building watching how the coach works? So how did the board um, work under the uh, resigned chairman recently? And it, from all that's come out, it doesn't seem to have done all that well. It's also clear that the appointments were made by the government for reasons that are more to do with the government's needs than the ABC's needs, as I understand it. Um, so the, the critical thing here for me is that the appointment of the managing director and the next chair is fundamental, that their interests are in the editorial direction of the ABC, the support of the staff to do great things, um, and to be able to be seen and actually act independently of anything that the government thinks is in bias or tones that they don't like. Every government has issues with every media organisation. I don't think there's anything new in that. In fact, Kerry O'Brien was talking about the other night that Bob Hawke was, you know, suggesting that he was biased. Reporters make mistakes, but I don't believe that any of them is biased. And I also believe that the ABC system ensures that the editorial direction that they put on air, on radio, on TV, whatever it is, is, is given the best endeavour of journalistic uh, skills. If I have a criticism of the ABC, is I don't think that the across the board that the news coverage that they produce, particularly in their bulletins at 7 o'clock at night, works hard enough. You know, that's one thing. Um, I think that they've got some but great... What do you mean works, works hard enough? Uh, just the what, same Tougher old thing. stories, tougher yeah, analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I often under, couldn't understand why do we have a 7 o'clock news and then a 7.30 report? Surely they're the same thing. That news is about analysis of news as well as news being presented. Oh, well, you see, they tried that, though. I do know, you remember that national, show? Yeah, yeah the national. A different time, a different space, different media needs, no social media at that stage. But I would argue that it should work like a newspaper does, and newspapers now are getting all fuzzy and peculiar. So it used to be in the old day that you would have your news pages where, you know, dog bites man, you know, yeah. man dead, da-da-da-da, you know, just the facts and figures. 
and then you would get to what you knew was, were the opinion pages and commentary and then you knew mentally you were going into a different space. You were going to be provoked. You were going to be you, – you would end up asking questions. You would learn more. And this is one of the things I hate about newspapers now. There's no differentiation between the two. It's all mucked up. And often you'll have a, a journalist who's writing a news story and in the third paragraph they'll sometimes use the I word, which is a sin. But um, I, I really feel with the, the, with the ABC, I like that pattern of the news and Hendo who announced his retirement this week in Melbourne, uh, you know, the newsreader and then going on to, to Lee Sales for something more in-depth. Yeah, well, if you compare what um, the flagship radio shows do, which is AM and PM, um, with the 7 o'clock news, they're completely different approaches. Um, the, the, the news programs on radio have more analysis, have more time with each story, they're less involved in the images, which television is constantly involved with for reasons that are semi-obvious, you know, you do need vision, but... Um, I'm I'm one who needs analysis of stories, not once over lightly. So you'd like to see like a PM structure at night? I would, yeah. As a yeah. Diff- difference yeah. to commercial yeah. television. But look, in the end, it's about um, my first point is that the new managing director needs to have a real sense of what communication is from the national broadcaster to the whole of the country and how it works. Agree. Anna, how do you access the ABC? I'm just an ABC TV sort of chick and my whole family's the same and I mean I love the fact that all members of my family can be watching different ABC programs you know throughout the day you know from granny down to my children so no we're just TV and I love it but it needs to be a lot better and Jeff I see I like the news these are the facts and then you go on to Lee Sales I'm a bit with Corrie I'm very happy with that. I like them. And the Annie, line in the sand. Anna, you were telling me there was news coming out of your book club about the ABC yes. last week when you met. We were talking about this very issue and book club just raised the motion that we all need as a book club to join friends of the ABC, you know, if people aren't already, which I certainly wasn't. And I know I've heard Corrie talk about it on this podcast, but I've been a bit remiss, but I think we all need to get behind it. Yes, we do indeed. Well, love your ABC, join friends, and uh, hopefully um, the Prime Minister will stay out of his um, wanting Mm. to – I think the quote was, you can expect a bit more attention from me, which is always a bit, um, you know, grim. Wishing Ian (laughs) Henderson well in his retirement from reading the news. I felt like I'd lost a friend when I heard that yesterday. I love Hendo. My mother, we shop you, at the same butcher at the South Melbourne Market, so I'm well, often giving him a, tell him you're a cheerio. Friend, tell him that you're a friend of mine because oh. he, my mother used to drive he and my brother to school because school was way beyond walking distance for them and I would be seated apparently in the middle of the two of them because Hendo can remember me at the age of four or five. So she used to drive him to school every day oh. for about five years. So there you go. I'll be bringing um, that up. Isn't now, that something we can say to most people across Melbourne, Code? Just let him know I know Corey. Yes. Well, yeah. I'm famous, aren't I? That's what I keep telling. Hey, um, crush of the week, Jeff. You've got one. But before you go on with your crush, dying to hear what it is or who it is, I would like to say that this section is brought to us by our sponsors, the Interchange Bench, specialists in temporary staffing and executive contracting. Visit theinterchangebench.com.au. Who's your crush? Well, interestingly enough, um, Perhaps Anna and I should actually um, uh, register with the Interchange Bench, Corrie, giving our uh, appearance here today. 
<laughs> filling in the big shoes of Ms. Wilson. They need two of us for one of her. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've got mixed feelings about my crush of the week this week because it's Malcolm Turnbull. And as, <laughs> as Prime Minister... It's so funny, this crush of the week. It was my dog two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, wasn't it a footy player, Miss Jane, I think? I don't know. Who I love crush of the week. <laughs> well, the mixed feelings are that Malcolm Turnbull had the opportunity to be a great Prime Minister and he never fulfilled that role in, in any way. Um, but this week, his response to what's happened in Canberra as presented to a forum in New York was superb because it nailed, his, it nailed the issues that are bedeviling our federal system. He said, There was no way I would be hanging around embittered like Kevin Rudd or Tony Abbott. Seriously, these people are like sort of miserable, miserable ghosts. Move on. Now, you couldn't express it better. The question is whether anybody will move on. And straight away, Rudd, who was probably a greater disappointment as Prime Minister than, than I feel Turnbull was, came in with his Twitter feed. Dear Malcolm, a quick reality check on, quote, miserable ghosts. First, having told the world you've left politics behind, you seem to be in the media every day talking about it. Second, in case you didn't notice, I left Parliament for New York City five years ago, why not come over for a cuppa? Good on you, Kev. <laughs> oh, pedestrian and also, best. I th- <laughs> and also, I think Malcolm's point is that Kevin Rudd stayed in Parliament and niggled away at Julia Gillard all through her leadership. M- Malcolm Turnbull has Leech. jumped on the plane and taken off to NYC where he and Lucy have the apartment. Good on him, I say. Yeah. Dignified exit. Very agree. <laughs> I agree with that. One of the most uh, authoritative things he did in his time as Prime Minister was leave it with dignity. Yes, well, that's not saying a lot, though, is it? Uh, (laughs) In two and a half years. Um, Well, thanks, Slats. And remember, everyone, if your business needs new players, like Don't Shoot the Messenger does today because Miss Caroline is playing golf in New Zealand, you can pick them up at the Interchange Bench, the leading provider of temporary and contract talent. See interchangebench.com.au. And as we always say, for talent so good, you'd wish you could keep them. Visit the interchange bench and you'll find links to them, of course, in our show notes. I love reading this ad. I'd always feel like <laughs> Ro- Rosemary Margan, remember? <laughs> now, um, we also, uh, we've got some exciting plans brewing with the team at the interchange bench and don't shoot the messenger. We're going to have a live podcast event. Woo-woo! Yeah, no, we're very <laughs> excited. We hope you two will come. So that'll make five of us, or you know, with Miss Jane. So that's a little quorum we've got already. But it is going to be uh, a lunch um, on November the 28th in Melbourne. So if any potties are out there, just pop it in your diary uh, and we'll give you more details as they come to hand. But Caro and myself and a few surprise panellists, a couple of them might actually be here today, you never know, <laughs> um, we'll be just shooting the breeze and having a drink with our friends. On to BSF, and Anna, you have a book. I do, Corrie. Now, my book is called Pachinko by the Korean-American author Min Jin Lee. And this 2017 novel, it's a fabulous epic historical saga of a Korean family who migrate to Japan. It spans eight decades, four generations, so it's not oh for the faint-hearted. It's a doorstopper. Is stopper. there an index at the front who's who, <laughs> like, like you do with um, War and Peace? I can't remember, but you sort of get, you know, you think, oh, God, I can't cope with this, and then you get into it and it's an absolute page-turner. But it's a tale of family, identity, love, death and survival. 
It's been doing very well in the bookshop, but slow burn, Anna, it, when it arrived, it was impossible to sell. I don't know whether it was the cover or the Korean aspect or the, or the you know, the big epic story, but it was number one, one month there with Amazon, I think. Well, I was just about to say, Pachinko was voted one of the New York Times 10 best books of ah. 2017 and went on to become an American national bestseller. Well, there you go. And you're probably thinking, what the hell is Pachinko? So I'm here to tell you it's a mechanical gambling game similar to slot machines. And according to Mr. Google, as of 2015, Japan's Pachinko market generates more gambling revenue than that of Vegas, Macau and Singapore combined. Lordy. So it's huge. I had no idea. I didn't I had no idea what the word meant. So not surprisingly, it's largely associated with the rise of the Japanese uh, mafia, the uh, Yakuza, and linked to crime, prostitution and tax avoidance. Oh, as you'd as you'd imagine. It's but, a novel for every everyone. <laughs> I was completely unaware also of the prejudices and discrimination facing Koreans living in Japan in the 20th century and how they were treated as second-class citizens, denied the ability to work. Um, They had to have identity cards and often ended up in the pachinko industry. And this book deals with all those issues. So the story begins in a small Korean village in 1911 and through the cast of family members, it examines Koreans in exile in Japan and the Japanese repression of Koreans. So you see the story from both sides. Which, of course, was touched on in Richard Flanagan's Narrow Road to the Deep North. Exactly. A lot of that. Yeah, So, uh, but I, was, I probably didn't know that much about it. So for me, it was quite a steep learning curve, but fascinating. And I think probably Pachinko is a metaphor for the life of Koreans in Japan, always hoping for some good luck and change in their circumstances. But like all gaming machines, you never win. <laughs> so I just want to say it's an absorbing read. It's a bit of a pot boiler, but what great family saga read isn't. It's got a fabulous plot, good twists and turns. It's well written and it's a really satisfying read. Anna's little message there, Jeff, is a good one for you, a salient point, because you are a bit of a gambler. You have greyhounds. Yeah. I imagine you bet on them. Uh, and I have seen well. you do the form guide with me before and <laughs> whiz down to the TAB in the old days. I've um, had greyhounds for 10 years. I've had some really good greyhounds. But interestingly, when my greyhounds are racing, I don't bet on them. I just let the prize money run. Gambling and is. And there's some... been a bit of that over the years, <laughs> There has been. Have they got, had some fabulous names? I always think greyhounds have the best names. What are your dish liquor's names? Any uh, good ones? My champion was called Tommy Brislane. And mm. it's, there is a great story to this because his mother was called Mary Virginia. And Mary Virginia, <laughs> I didn't know where you were going on, with that. <laughs> hang on. No, no, you like this story. In fact, you'll all be in tears at the end of this. I can tell you're a, boy, a Catholic boy. <laughs> Mary Virginia was my mother's name. And, oh, you're poor. And you named hang on, hang on, a dish liquor after hang on, her. Hang on. All right. At the end of her life when she was dying and in hospital, I said to her, Mum, I've bought two greyhounds. I'm Bet you call, she was thrilled to hear that. Yeah, I'm going to call one Mary Virginia, which is your name, and the other I'm going to call Brislane, and Brislane was her maiden name. So she almost jumped out of bed with excitement <laughs> and laughing. And said, so, don't you start spending that inheritance too soon, no, Sonny. Anyway, Brislane was a champion. Mary Virginia was a hopeless greyhound, won one race. But Mary Virginia produced 
a champion called Tommy Brislane. And Tommy Brislane was my mother's brother who was killed in the Second World War. So that's Oh, the... I'm going to stop crying. <laughs> I love the family tree interpreted yeah. into oh, live dog I was racing. It with fabulous. mother on the deathbed. <laughs> uh, Mum would still be laughing at that story. but um... And what other names have you got in your flock? Well, I had another one who was also a, a daughter of um, Mary Ginna called Bellwether. And Bellwether produced a, a whole series of greyhounds, but one of them was called Eden Monaro. So <laughs> After the electorate. After yeah, because it's always called the Bellwether electorate. Come on, Corny, you've got to get you got to real I'm on really this. slow. Talking I'm about really names, slow. I'm reminded of that time in the age when you were, your byline was Corny Parkins. <laughs> <laughs> These was when the subs were really on fire. So one day it we had... No, it wasn't. It was the rang you up when I'd done that shocking no. Collingwood report. So we had Corny Parkins Corny. and then Richard Yellop the next week was called Richmond Richmond right. Yellop. We called him Richmond Forever. Richmond Forever. And then he was called Rickards Yellop. <laughs> oh, poor Richard. What a fabulous writer he was. Oh, he was, but you, I think you were better, Jeff. I do. But oh, um, Well, rubbish. look, can you give us a tip? And also, Anna and I are very happy for you to use, you could have Corianna. Or exactly. you can use our names if you like for the next Well, next what about Miss Jane? Yeah, Miss Jane's Miss Jane. a really good name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on to screen now. And I just want to quickly mention a, a show that is on the ABC at the moment on Sunday nights at 7.30. Anna, I think you've been catching up with this Joanna Lumley's Silk Road. How much do we love Joanna? What a complete babe, as Jeff said, at 72. Mm. I, I love her. I love foxy. Her. She's foxy. Oh. She's enthusiastic. Exactly. I love her vitality. I love what she brings to the screen. She makes you want to go wherever the travelogue is, well, places I've never wanted to get to. Last Sunday night, Azerbaijan. Exactly. Um, the city of Baku on the shores of the Caspian Sea. You can see I've made show notes here on the back of an envelope <laughs> literally here. What else have I written? And don't you the love... The Caucasus Mountains between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. How beautiful that. And then she was flirting with the winemaker from Georgia and then wore the silkworm oh. as a little brooch. She's, and I love, love the her. way she always makes the connections with the locals. But what I love most of all, there's always a, a flash of Patsy. So there's a little guttural laugh, a throaty chuckle, and it just gets me every time. It's usually with a glass of wine or when she's in an expensive and hotel just... room. So, Potties, there's another couple of weeks of that, but you can always just um, look Eye at view. it through iView, exactly, yeah, which also, I've just discovered. Her previous one on Japan was absolutely oh, superb. Couldn't Jeff, agree more. Yeah. I was crying. You know when she goes to the place where the Japanese soldiers commit suicide? Yeah. Whatever, I know it's got a name, but whatever it is. I was completely sobbing. She was sobbing. We were all sobbing at home. I thought that was such moving TV. It was a bit like Collingwood supporters in the no. last minutes of the game. <laughs> right, food recipe now. Oh, God. Now, I've just written here risotto or pilaf. I don't know what Yum. this is about. Carbohydrates yeah, galore. Yeah. Um, well, in the last few years, I've been devoted to the Thermomix. We, we've created a magazine on the Thermomix, which is now 12 issues coming up, but I didn't know whether you are We sell it in my bookshop. Yeah, well, so you should mm, because it's don't. a brilliant um, expose of the opportunities that Thermomix brings to cooks. But this Isn't is not the a... is Thermomix a bit of a um, cupboard grabber? It's bloody enormous. Yeah, it costs two grand yeah. too, Anna. It's not the money. It's just I don't have that much bench space, to be honest. That is rubbish. It, it's, well, it's, it's the same big, size Jeff. as any blender. Oh, Any, they must the have reduced Magimix, the size. Magimix blend, all those sort of things. Okay. Anyway, this is not a um, Thermomix <laughs> because 
I wasn't sure whether your audience would be sophisticated enough to actually get into the new generation oh, of cooking. AKA wealthy enough. No, we're yeah. not. That's why we need more sponsors for Don't Shoot the Messenger so Caro and I can afford a thermos. So, um, uh, by the way, how did Caro get away with a recipe last week for a vinaigrette that had a quarter of a cup of sugar and two tablespoons of Dijon mustard? Good what do you God, mean? woman. I hope she listened to this in New Zealand. <laughs> but French, good French dressing ah. has sugar in it. Maybe not a quarter of a cup. Yeah, but almost every week he emails or texts Carol and I about our recipes. Jeff, I thought that recipe sounded yum with the herbs. One-fifth of, <laughs> one <fifth> of good <laughs> vinegar and four-fifths of really good olive oil, salt and pepper. That's all you need for No, Dijon mustard and lemon uh, juice and garlic. I'm the sorry, beef, The beef served on the rocket and you were just throwing up. With all your <laughs> What's ingredi- wrong with that? <laughs> all your ingredients, you get rid of all those ingredients, you've got space for your Thermomix on the bench. Come no. on, hurry up, otherwise we'll be here next week when okay. she gets back. All right. So so the, this is something I learned from a, a fabulous Italian evangelist for rice and risotto called Gabrielle Ferron. In the late 80s at um, William Anglis, he did a demonstration there about cooking risotto without employing the uh, stock into the rice evaporate, stock into the rice evaporate. This is about one portion of rice and two portions of stock or, or water. And you use the absorption method for about 12 or 13 minutes, just let it go on a very, very sl- a slow heat and let it let the rice absorb the stock and then give it a big whirl at the end and there's your risotto. So do we go through the process? Yeah, quickly. Oh, quickly. One onion chopped, one chili. <laughs> so one onion chops finely, one chili chopped finely, quarter a cup of extra virgin olive oil, two and a half cups of arborio rice, five cups of simmering stock or water, handful of fresh herbs, zest of one lime, salt, 100 grams of grated Parmigiano-Reggiano or Grana Padano, none of that packaged rubbish. Where's the white wine? Oh, God. Whose recipe is this? Okay, go on. <laughs> go, 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 go. 25 grams of cold butter, small bunch of chives, 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 uh, juice of one lime, and then for the top, some uh, Tasmanian smoked salmon. Then the lime on the side for cutting the quarters. Cook the onion and the chili in the olive oil until softened Use a heavy, using a heavy base pot. Add the rice and toss until the grains are well covered and almost roasted through the oil. Pour in the stock and then add the herbs and the lime zest. Cover the pot, making sure a little bit of steam escapes. Reduce the heat to low to medium and cook for 13 or 14 minutes. Check after about 12 minutes to make sure it's all well if you're worried, but if it's burning, you'll, hit, you'll smell it and you'll never do it again. So take off the lid. <laughs> take and off you've the ruined lid. your pan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, And then you have to clean the Worst pan for all. a week. Mm. Um, most of the liquid have been absorbed and the rice will be just perfectly al dente. Add some salt, the parmesan, the butter, the chives, the lime juice. Stir together and let it all come together. Um, serve on a, on a, in a bowl and cover it with the smoked salmon with the lime on the side, and that's it. So I've also, um, in the Sounds recipe... Delicious. I was going to say, it, my mouth's watering and it's only 10 to 9. Yeah, well, we're yeah. going there for lunch today to Jeff's, all right? <laughs> now, also, in the recipe, which will be on your Facebook page... Yes, yeah, I've all also sorts of places. made a link to uh, Ferron actually showing how to cook risotto in a video. Um, it's tiny, you... 
tinyurl.com forward slash Ferron, F-E-R-R-O-N, risotto. And you can actually watch this guy being flamboyant, cooking risotto in this absorption method. It's really funny. It's really fun. And it'll give you a method to, to make risotto that you'll love forever. Or we can come to your house tonight, yours and Sally's, and watch you do it for us. What yes. time, Jeff? Oh, yeah. Is that the November 28 event, is it? <laughs> we could actually. You could be like Geraldine Dillon yes. and have it all set up and we could do a little cooking You could do a demo. Bring your Thermomix. I'm sure it travels. Okay, that's it for BSF. What are you grumpy about today? I think I might choose slashery today because uh, you're always grumpy, especially when I'm late with my coffee. I'm, I'm permanently grumpy in the uh, lead-up to the grand final and on grand final day. The lead-up is when the international um, artists, in inverted commas, are introduced by the AFL and they're photographed with footies. And Meat then. Life. I'll never forget. <laughs> this year it was Black Eyed Peas and mm. Jimmy Minus Barnes. Fergie. Jimmy Barnes, never heard of Fergie. Is that the former princess? <laughs> um, you idiot, get on with it. Like, uh, and then on the day when they screech and yell and nobody can hear a damn thing at the ground, it is purely for television. It is an incredible waste of money. It adds nothing to the grand final. And if only that $750,000 was better spent by the AFL, it would be a better grand final. And let me tell you an example. <clears throat> When I was lucky enough to be on, in 1A and 1B at the AFL and we went to Ireland for those uh, international events, international <laughs> events, the pre-game entertainment was a band marching around the ground in single file with the players after them. And then they sang the national anthem. It was just glorious. And the thing about noise at the footy, it reduces that beautiful capacity of people to chat about what's to come or what's happened. Noise, noise, noise. Get rid of it. Oh, Jeff, tell us what I'm you really I'm with you think. on that. I hate the ads that blare your, your yeah. ears off. Remember Voice of the G? Yes, Remember yes. that man who was on the top of a scoreboard? That was the most irritating thing. They're still there every week making noise, yeah. doing events, having bloody people putting T-shirts on top of each other. It's just absurd. Let me speak to the person next to me. Yeah, and yeah. what happened to Craig Willis? You're a bit upset about that, Anna. I, look, I, I really miss Craig. I thought Hamish did a great job, but I... I I'd yeah. love to he see Craig. He is the voice of the G, he isn't is. he, Remember, Craig? You know, number nine. Anything you'd like to add there, uh, Craig's having happy retirement from the AFL system. All right. Okay. So he won't be back? I don't believe so, no. Okay. Oh, I think there's a story behind that. Okay, six quick questions, and I'm going to start off um, to you, Anna, I think. Yes. I'll ask, should Channel 9's footy show be axed? This is not the New South Wales one because that was axed a couple of days ago. This is the footy show of Eddie Maguire and Sam Newman. I'm saying a big yes. I'm saying not relevant, not informative, not entertaining and not remotely funny. Hello, front bar. Have you been the audience? Not not recently, no. no. Okay, so Probably got... not for a decade, but I asked my son and he completely concurred with what I said. Sure. Your turn to ask me a question. Oh, okay. Corrie, why do you always promote cookbooks from overseas chefs? <laughs> Well, that's just crap because I mentioned Family by Hattie McKinnon a couple of weeks ago. I'm often referring to local cooks, but why wouldn't you mention Ottolenghi, the new simple? Because it's just one of the best cookbooks that's been around for the last five years. Have you eaten any of Ottolenghi's food direct from one of his establishments? I did. Well, I did. Only one salad because uh, <laughs> the queue was so bad. Uh, in the Notting Hill shop. It was pretty good, actually. I've had dinner at his restaurant. In, is it in Islington? You're all over London. But one and one of them, we just ate through the entire menu. I was with a friend who was a chef. It was 
completely divine. Yeah, well, look, Jeff, I think you, your question's a bit irrelevant there. Anna, you I, had one for slats, I think. Slats, I want to ask you, what are your survival tips for someone going on a long flight? Well, there are two answers to that. One, don't go. Stay at home. It was your, it was yeah. your son's wedding in That's Italy, right. you dick. What do you mean? <laughs> you dick. You only got back two weeks ago. The photos were wonderful. You and Sally had a fabulous yes. time. So, um, oh, don't go and. <laughs> so if you do go, mm. um, and I discovered this just before we we left, noise cancelling headphones are an absolute mm. must My for any long raves. haul. Mm. Um, and there are two parts to that. First of all, it reduces the noise. Three parts. Secondly, it allows you to have a little bit of a nap on the side of the headphones if it's got a nice puffer on it. And thirdly, importantly, Corey, if you download Don't Shoot the Messenger, you can fade away listening to you and Caro on the first leg of the flight. It's just magnificent. So what I actually did was load a whole lot of podcasts and just fade it away in the corner of the seat. Well, we were chatting on. The second item is order... Asian vegetarian because it's the only meal that can be cooked properly on a plane through a microwave system because it's mainly chickpeas and rice and all those sort of uh, tofu, which which reheats really well, or fruit only. Oh, okay. No beef stroganoff or anything for you. None of chicken or fish or rubbish. Slats, my question to you is Brett Kavanagh, US Supreme Court nominee. Is he telling the truth or is he telling porkies? Well, I think the interesting thing about this is what what I took from that um, appearance was this is a person who's expected to be a, a listener in significant cases that affect the culture of the United States. And he spent most of his presentation yelling at the let's call them prosecutors, because they were prosecuting for the truth. That didn't seem to me to be a person who should sit on the Supreme Court of the United States. Whether he is telling the truth or not, as the person who was hired by the Republicans to test the issue of sexual assault by Professor Ford, um, it's a he said, he said and she said situation. And if, unless the FBI can find out some true evidence, one will never know but other is, than believe but one isn't or the believe lie the other. saying that he didn't he said he didn't have a drinking problem and clearly evidence has come through that he did when he was younger. Well, yes. Anyway. Yeah. I've and, got a question for you. Oh Corey. yes, please. I'd love one. Um this is a great one. Who's on the guest list to Princess Eugenie's wedding besides Fergie? Well, I was going to say it's Fergie. one of the first royal weddings in eons that Fergie's been invited to. I know. Oh. I, I, I'm hoping it's going to be on TV, but apparently no. Prince Andrew well, went to the BBC and they said well, no interest. Did. No, but I've got an update on that. The last couple of days, Prince Andrew, aka the wedding planner, because that's what he sees himself <laughs> now as, has gone to ITV and they have confirmed that they will be televising. So there you go. We might be able to see. Will it we on. get it? Well, we might be able to see it on Foxtel or something. I'm not sure where ITV comes through. No. But Elton John, of course, is going to be there mm. with his husband. Mm. Um, the Beckhams are going to be there. Robbie Williams, whose daughter is going to be one of Princess Eugenie's flower girls, so he's going to be there. Of course, no royal wedding these days without George Animal Clooney. Um, Has she just cut and pasted um, Meghan and... Harry's guest list. <laughs> Seems to be all, all too familiar. Why are we talking um, about this rubbish? <laughs> it's not rubbish. It's way more interesting. And, than and Anna, what's your GLT? Look, my husband wanted me to say Graham Blundell's TV column in The Australian, but yes, I'm not. I agree I'm, with that. I think it's great. I'm actually giving an enormous thumbs up to our fabulous botanic gardens. Spring has well and truly sprung. 
and nowhere more so than our gardens at the moment. I went on a walk yesterday with our friend Tanya and we saw, we heard beautiful bird song. We saw plate-sized peonies, which were incredible. Judas tree, I mean, what a name, in full bloom. Banks of brilliant orange clivias and that fabulous volcano. Yeah, it, which, it, which it is, is a great time to go around. It's so beautiful. Gardens, and uh, there's so many hidden gems from the women's garden to the temple of the four winds where as schoolgirls we were not allowed to go. And I don't quite know oh, why. Given this is an international broadcast, you can apply that to any botanic gardens. Or as Caro says, not the botanical, botanical gardens. gardens. No. <laughs> Tanya says the Greek the ones, are ap- the Athens ones are absolute rubbish. But I think ours are free, are. fabulous right and underappreciated. I couldn't agree more. And so I would just also like to mention, and I didn't, we had lots of lovely correspondence from Potties regarding the article in the Good Weekend magazine, which was the two of us, Caro and I, talking about ourselves. It would have been really great if they'd plugged Don't Shoot the Messenger at the bottom of the story. But it was really nice. Um, and I look especially fetching in Caro's coat, which the photographer insisted I wore because clearly he didn't like my pantsuit that I was well, wearing. I so. you looked gorgeous. Oh, and thanks. can I just ask you, what was it like doing an article like that, like talking so personally about a friend? Well, we, you have to do it separately, so you're not sure what the other says. And then you, oh, so there's no right of reply. <laughs> no, and then you wonder, did you get your facts right? Yeah. Oh, my God. But there were a lot of similarities, like, yes, we wagged RMIT when we were 18, and we'd go mm. home to Caro's house and lay on Julia's double bed and watch Ivan's midday <laughs> movie. And there was a lot of that. But it was really, it was a nice opportunity. It is always a lovely opportunity, whether it's a speech or whatever, to say how much you love your friends. So that's pretty good. And I love my two friends here. Jeff Slattery, who I've known since I was 18. Anna, who I've known since I was 17. Oh. Is that 50 years? <laughs> not yet. Oh, no, it might be actually. No, it's not 50 no. years yet. No, we're not that old. Um, and I'd like to thank Miss Jane for putting up with us um, and letting us go way over time this week. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And thanks, of course, to the Interchange Bench for sponsoring the show. And you'll find full details of everything we've talked about, including Jeff's recipe, in our show notes to the podcast app. And if you'd like to comment on anything we've talked about you've got a, or a good local tip or any recommendation, please do email us feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. You can follow us on Facebook. You can check us out on Twitter. And when I remember the password, you can find us on <laughs> the Carol and Corey Instagram account. Oh, talk about, you know, life imitating art. Um, and don't forget to subscribe or tell a friend about our brand new spin-off podcast, The Book Pod. And our first episode is up now with Leanne Moriarty. And that's all um, really been fun. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Anna. And what do we say? Don't, don't shoot, shoot the, the messenger. messenger. <laughs> You're an idiot. Hi, this is Leanne Moriarty. Make sure you listen in to episode one of The Book Pod with Corey Perkin. Do you mind your friends or, or people you meet often? Yes. Oh, oh I mind them terribly, <laughs> yes. So, so I mind anybody I meet for anything I can get, yes. Yes, there's probably nothing left in all my poor friends. I've taken everything they've got to give or they're prepared to give. I find it especially hard when I just get started to her, then I find it hard in the beginning. Then I get into the swing of it and I quite like it, but then after a while I don't like the fact that I like it. I'm ashamed that I like it. So I start to think, come home from an event and think, you liked that too much, you're disgusting. So then the self-loathing, by the end of it, I cannot stand, I can't stand myself. 
This is a character who is simultaneously narcissistic but at the same time deeply insecure. Yes, has so much vanity but has a tragic past and so is a so many contradictions that I know Nicole will have the ability to convey both, you know, by a single facial expression. So I can't wait to see it. So she literally used the word cringe. It was the cultural cringe right there. I believe she felt as though in fiction you shouldn't use Australian, you shouldn't have an Australian setting, as if to be special needs to be set somewhere else, as if there was something almost embarrassing about setting something in Australia. But I think we've lost that now. I do think that now Australian readers say to me all the time, I love the fact that it's set in Australia. I'm Leanne Mariotti and you're listening to The Book Pod. Subscribe to The Book Pod wherever you listen to podcasts.